I got tested and it was a black woman and she says, honey, I hate to tell you, but you are HIV positive. And she says, can I give you a hug? That was in 1991. She's the only medical person that actually touched my body without wearing gloves and masks and, and breaking the boundaries of distance. Hello, and welcome back to Not Your Parents, Sex Ed. I'm Casper, I use he, him pronouns, and I will be hosting this episode. Today, we are going over some of the history of HIV and AIDS in the U.S., and joining us today is a guest on the podcast who lived through the AIDS epidemic in the U.S. Would you mind introducing yourself, Calvin? Hi, my name is Calvin Gibson. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I became HIV positive when I was 30 years old in San Francisco, uh, in the Bay Area, and I have conquered HIV for 32 years. Yeah, and then as usual, we are also joined by some of the other youth leaders here if they would like to also introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Chanel and I'm 18 years old and I go by she, her pronouns. Hi, I'm Marla. I'm 21 years old and I also go by she, her pronouns. To start off, we're going to go over a quick explanation of what HIV is and how it's transmitted. So we have a basis of knowledge before we get into the history. Um, So HIV, also called human immunodeficiency virus, is a virus that attacks white cells in one's immune system, making it more difficult for one's body to fight other infections. If left untreated, it can lead to AIDS or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, a condition in which one's immune system is very badly damaged as a result of HIV. And just to be clear, HIV is the virus and AIDS is the condition that results if the virus goes untreated. HIV is spread through the blood, semen, vaginal fluids, breast milk, and rectal fluids of an infected person, and AIDS cannot be transmitted. The only way to know if you have HIV is to get tested, as most people are asymptomatic or have symptoms that resemble a cold when they first contract it. And asymptomatic means you don't show any symptoms. And HIV does not currently have a cure, but there are effective treatments that prevent the development of AIDS and transmission of the virus and allow those infected to still live a healthy, sexually active, and long life. So starting off, I'm going to just preface this with of a statement. So there was a lot done by individual people, groups, and organizations to help combat the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the U.S. and advocate for people living with HIV and AIDS. However, this episode mostly focuses on responses from the federal U.S. government and the lasting effects those have had. So we start on the 5th of June, 1981, in which there were the first reports of what is now known as AIDS. It was originally thought to be the lung disease pneumocystis pneumonia. (laughs) I think I said that right. But uh, HIV had just weakened their immune system enough that a common, typically non-deadly infection was able to cause irreparable damage. So it wasn't the um, lung disease that was really the the main issue. And then on the 24th of September, 1982, the term AIDS was coined. And the CDC released the first case definition of AIDS in which the term AIDS is used for the first time. Before this, the disease was commonly referred to as things like GRID or gay-related immune deficiency, gay cancer, etc. So I guess to start off, what was sort of the, the stigma like back then, Calvin? At the very beginning of the crisis, I, I moved to San Francisco in 1985. So I literally moved to San Francisco during the very beginnings of the HIV crisis. And I lived through it until 2007 when I moved back to Denver. 
But at the very beginning, it was just very, very odd. People didn't know what was going on because you had all of these young people in their 30s and in their 40s that are getting sick and dying. So the very beginning, it was like a lot of fear. What's going on? How is this happening? No one knew how the disease was spread. And unlike COVID, uh, before it even came to the United States, we pretty much knew what we were dealing with. Uh, we, we knew that it was a disease that was spread through society. Uh, with HIV, President Ronald Reagan didn't, didn't even say the word AIDS until four years into the crisis. So there was a long period of time. There was what we called gay panic, where all of a sudden it's um, people were saying, well, it's a gay disease and it's because of your lifestyle and it's because uh, gay men are promiscuous. And I am a minister and I, I moved to California to serve as a campus minister, the, the minister of music in the Church of Christ. When I came out as a gay man, I went through an intervention and one of the things that they said was, that I would get AIDS and die of AIDS as God's punishment. That was one of the things that was said to me, and then I became HIV positive four years later. And I remember I auditioned to sing with the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. And ironically, the Gay Men's Chorus rehearsed in the same church building that I got kicked out of for being gay. Wow. <laughs> so when I, when I went to audition, I actually auditioned on the same stage that I used to perform on uh, when, when I was a minister uh, in the church. So at the very beginning, that was the atmosphere. And what I would like to say, the way I would like to describe it in today's terms is imagine all of your friends at school or all of your coworkers die. All of the ones that were your age, they all die. And then imagine your friendship circle on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok, all the friends that you have. You don't use Facebook, but my generation uses Facebook <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter. Imagine your entire friends list all had HIV. That's what it was like. Every single day, somebody was dying. Your friends were dying and no one knew what was going on. And so that's what it was like at the very, very beginning of the crisis. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to, to hear. I guess um, we continue with um, the 11th of January, 1985. The CDC revised the AIDS case definition and added that it was caused by HIV. And then on the 27th of August, 1985, there was a 13-year-old named Ryan White who contracted HIV through a blood transfusion and went on to develop AIDS and then was denied entry to the school because he had developed AIDS, which brought national attention to the HIV and AIDS epidemic. So that's sort of like uh, early on. And then we move into the government's reaction to, to the epidemic. Firstly, on May 18th, 1983, the U.S. Congress allocated funds for HIV research and treatment for the first time. And then in 1983, the FDA implements a lifetime ban on gay and bisexual men donating blood as an attempt to bring down HIV contractions through blood transfusions. And then on the 15th of May in 1987, the U.S. Public Health Service mandates that everyone seeking entry into the country is tested for HIV and 
and it adds that HIV is a viable reason for someone to be denied entry into the country. Uh, and we'll, we'll retouch on that later. <laughs> um, and on the 31st of May in 1987, after six years of effectively anor- ignoring the issue, President Ronald Reagan makes his first public speech on the epidemic. Do you have any memories of like those those first actions taken by the government and this like speech by Ron- Ronald Reagan? Well, that's when it became real that people were not just dying, but that is actually going to impact our lives and decisions of our lives and the courses that we can take or directions that we can take in our lives. I remember I used to donate blood and I remember when I became HIV positive, the feeling that wow, I'm I'm dirty, I'm diseased. And it was just a reminder of, of where I just felt like an outcast in society. Socially, you had weird things like people didn't want you using public toilets. If you went to your family's home, they did not want to share dishes with you. So you got to the point where you just sort of avoided people and avoided uh, situations. But yes, uh, when Ryan White became HIV positive, when he was 13 years old, that changed the conversation from, well, it's a gay man's disease, but now we find out that it's now a part of our blood uh, system. And it did take away a little bit of the stigma, but being gay was still the primary stigma. People still felt it was something that gay men uh, was spreading through society. I remember when states were passing laws or trying to pass laws that they did not want you to get on an airplane if you were HIV positive. I remember when doctors, when you see a doctor, they would come in fully clothed. They kept their distance from you. They wouldn't touch you. They wouldn't hug you because they they didn't know how AIDS was transmitted. And my biggest memory with the U.S. government was this is a gay man's disease and that's what you get for being gay. And nobody cares. Who cares if the gay population dies off? So I remember it was just a very slow response and and how how do you treat this disease there was just a very cold cold uncaring attitude towards people living with HIV including the government and they were very bold as you can as you can see how ugly politicians can be today surrounding all kinds of issues it was that same type of atmosphere, just an ugliness. Um, let's criminalize HIV. That's many states uh, criminalize HIV that if you did not disclose to your partner that you were HIV positive and they ended up becoming positive, then that was considered a crime and you can you could go to jail. So that's my early memory of the government just having an uncaring attitude and society reacting as if you do not belong. We're afraid of you. Keep your distance. And you even had churches that refused to have funerals of people that died of AIDS. That was a huge, big deal. You had mortuaries that didn't even want to accept the bodies of people that died of AIDS because of the stigmas that were associated with it. And they did not want to be associated with what they considered to be a gay disease. Right, yeah, and some of those those laws that they put in place back then, we'll, we'll touch on it later, but there's still several of them that are um, still laws. Uh, obviously, yeah. it, it changes state to state. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask you a quick question based off of some of what you said. When do you think, if it was like during this time or much later, when do you think is like a moment where you first felt like a healthcare professional showed you compassion and kind of put aside that stigma and all that? I I hate to say it, but that didn't really happen until the mid... I would say I didn't receive that type of treatment until about 2007. Wow. So very late, late, late into the disease, but one exception. Yeah. So the way that I found out, when I got kicked out of the church, and the church told me that I was going to die of AIDS as God's punishment, um, at that point, I sort of resolved in my mind that that was my destiny. So when you feel like it's your destiny, then there's almost an attitude that you don't care. It's not like you're calling to other humans that you don't want to infect them deliberately, but there's just a resolve that I'm going to die when I'm 30 years old. So I did not prepare to live in the old age. So it was very common. I did not have a 401k. It's like, why sign up for a 401k or retirement plans if you think that you're going to die in your early 30s? Gay men were uh, buying expensive cars. They were cashing out their life insurance policies. So basically, if all of a sudden you saw one of your friends driving a Corvette down the street, one of those nice red shiny Corvettes, convertibles, you're like, he's going to be dead in six months. It was like a signal. When guys were like overly dressed and stuff like that, it was a signal. But before 2007, I did have one experience. I had sex with a man who told me he was HIV positive after we had sex. He disclosed it. So I decided, well, I better go get tested. (laughs) So I went to the doctor. I got tested. And it was a black woman who reminded me of one of my family members, one of my aunties, a very large, lovely, lovable black woman. And she says, honey, I hate to tell you, but you are HIV positive. And she says, can I give you a hug? That was in 1991. She's the only medical person that actually touched my body without wearing gloves and masks and and breaking the boundaries of distance. Until about 2007, when it became part of the practice of health professionals to, um, you can touch people. It's important that you hold people's hands. It's important that uh, you don't feed into the stigma that uh, they are unapproachable. So I got a hug by a caring black nurse (laughs) uh, at the time of my diagnosis. And then I started going through the experience of this is what it's like being a person living with AIDS, with with HIV. Based on that compassion that Marla was asking about earlier, would you say that your white counterparts were more likely to be treated sooner than you as a black person? It's difficult for me to answer that question because at that time, I wasn't looking at HIV through the mirror of race. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would say, yes, in general, um, uh, Black people do not receive the same health care. But at that time, it was more about preparing for death than Mm -hmm. it was about navigating the health care healthcare system. It was more just coming to the realization that I'm going to die and that there's nothing, that there were no pills, there was nothing that was going to save me 
at that point of time. So I mentioned before, just imagining all of your friendship circles dying of AIDS. Well, imagine 30-year-olds walking down the street and they're using canes and they're in wheelchairs. And I have lost so much weight that I actually know what my skeleton looks like. <laughs> That's how much weight I had lost at one one point of time. So, so yes, uh, there is a lot of discrimination in the healthcare system towards people of color, especially black people. Right. But I can't specifically say I experienced that because during that period of time, it was more about death and, and dying. The first medication that came out was AZT. Um, I took AZT, but it was so toxic that I decided to just stop taking the medication. And I I know there's some controversy around this because some people were saying, well, AZT was helping people to live longer. In my experience, I think AZT was killing people because Mm -hmm. if the medication is so toxic, that you can't even live life. Um, That was my experience with AZT. Then they started coming out with other drugs and you had to take a regimen of like 12 pills a day. And it's like every two hours you're taking another pill. No human being can live life and take that many type of drugs. And then you didn't want to be a 30 year old carrying around a pill container. You know, your grandparents have the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when you divided out the bills. So it's like there was stigma associated with that. And it just reminded you that you were gonna die. But it was the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus that helped me come to terms with living with HIV and preparing to die of AIDS. Uh, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus had weekly memorial services. There was a member that died of AIDS every single week for a period of years. I think they've had nearly a thousand singers that have died of AIDS. And so we would have retreats and retreats is when we all would go out into the mountains or at a retreat site. And that's where you would just learn music and rehearse music for concerts that are coming up. But there was also fun times. And it was in that environment, hearing other men talk about their side effects of medications, how difficult it was to take medications, just sort of joking around, girl, what are you taking this week? I'm taking this that week. You know, <laughs> just sort of normalized taking meds and getting sick. And, and you sort of knew that if you got sick, then there was a community of men that will help guide you through it. For me, it was the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus and being a part of a community organization that helped me navigate uh, living with HIV. It wasn't the healthcare system. It wasn't the government. It was, I got myself into a community of people where we were able to have these conversations. And the Gay Men's Chorus uh, commissioned a song called Left Behind, and it was dedicated to all of the women who were left behind because of the men in their lives were all dying of AIDS. And um, it's like the women had to, to live with the grief and had to live with the sorrow. So... It was through those types of experience that helped me uh, navigate um, uh, living living with AIDS. Um, the gay community all of a sudden became very radicalized and they started demanding that the government do something about this. 
I was not a part of it, but there were activists like ACT UP that would chain themselves to the health department building or chain themselves to City Hall. And they're like, we're not going. I remember years of encampments where uh, activists set up tents on the front lawns of government buildings and they just refused to move. And people lived that way for, for years. During the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade, ACT UP would have what they would call die-ins in the middle of the parade. So all of a sudden, they're walking down the street, walking down the street, then everybody in their contingent would just lie on the ground as if they died. And then they had people draw chalk circles around them to indicate that there were dead bodies. So they would leave these images on the streets uh, during the Gay Pride Parade, or, or they would just block off an intersection and all of a sudden have a die-in. And all of a sudden you walk through an intersection with all of these chalk marks, uh, people representing people that had died. And I remember the voices getting very, very louder and louder and louder that uh, you have to do something. Now, mm -hmm. a piece of history, Denver is actually a part of the AIDS activist history because 40 years ago in 1983, they were having a health conference here trying to decide how to deal with HIV in, in society. And some of the activists came up with a manifesto and they demanded that gay men be treated with respect. They demanded that gay men be touched. They demanded that they end stigma. And that actually preceded ACT UP. The HIV activist movement started in Denver, Colorado at the Courtesy Hotel. So it's called the Denver Principles. So you can actually go online and read some of the demands that they made of the healthcare professionals and the government officials that were meeting in Denver at that time to address uh, HIV and AIDS. I didn't wow. know that. That'd be really yeah. interesting to visit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. That's really cool though. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> they um, just had the uh, 40th anniversary celebration and uh, I was the master's Master of Ceremonies for, for that celebration. Wow. So nice. it was cool. And we reread yeah. the Denver Principles. They had a <laughs> bunch of volunteers that got up. Because I think it was about eight or ten guys that initially came up with it. Mm -hmm. And so we recreated history. Of course, it was all white guys back then, or majority <laughs> white guys. So our history was diverse and had women and <laughs> people of color that actually uh, reenacted the reading of the Denver Principles. So I don't know if you want to ask questions or if you want me to just just keep talking. So you have to. <laughs> um, I have a little more stuff I can go through. So okay. um, we can shift gears and look at the laws the government started passing. So in October of 1987, the U.S. Senate passed the Helms Aid Amendments with only two opposed, which necessitate that educational materials about AIDS that are funded by the government, uh, federal government, stress sex abstinence and do not, quote, promote uh, homosexuality or drug use. And then on the 4th of November, 1988, Ronald Reagan signed the HOPE Act into law, which allowed federal funds to be used in AIDS prevention, testing, and education. And this bill established the Office of AIDS Research and was the first comprehensive federal bill addressing AIDS. And then in August of 1990, the U.S. Congress enacted the Ryan White Care Act, allocating federal funds towards HIV, community-based treatment, and 
and care, and states that received funding were required to have laws in place that criminalized HIV. So we're back to the, you know, stigma. So for example, gay men couldn't donate blood, they couldn't engage in prostitution, and many of those laws are still in place today, as we'll get to later. And then on the 18th of May, 1997, President Bill Clinton declared that finding an effective vaccine for HIV in the next 10 years is top national priority. That was 1997, so. And then in 28th of January, 2003, President George W. Bush announces the creation of the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief to help combat AIDS in countries with high HIV infection rates. On June 30th, 2022, the White House Office of National AIDS Policy discusses the need to update HIV criminalization laws and reflect current scientific understanding. And um, that happened last year. So it's it's very uh, behind as far as um, scientific understanding goes. The laws are not up to par with that. Uh, and some of the lasting effects of, of those, those HIV criminalization laws are things like the blood donations uh, that I talked about earlier. So it took until 2015 for the FDA to lift the lifetime ban on gay and bisexual men donating blood, but they still required that they abstain from sex for a year before donating blood. And then in April 2020, they changed the abstinence time period from a year to three months because of the blood shortage that occurred during the pandemic. And it was not until May of this year, so 2023, until they changed it to a policy of asking risk assessment questions to each individual, regardless of you know sex, gender, orientation, as a way to determine eligibility. So um, there's no longer that lifetime ban, but it did take until May of, of 2023 for that to, to happen. And the HIV testing mandates for those seeking entry into the country stood until 2010. So HIV was still a valid reason to be denied entry into the U.S. until 2010. The Helms AIDS Amendment stood until 1992, which was the amendment referring to sex education regarding AIDS, and comprehensive sex education in the U.S. is still lacking. As of 2021, only 30 of the 50 states in the U.S. require sex ed to be taught, and even fewer states require that the information even be medically accurate. The federal government also still funds abstinence-only sex ed programs, which have been shown to be harmful. And these HIV criminalization um, criminalization laws have been shown to be ineffective at reducing HIV transmission and even discourage people from getting tested, which then increases the likelihood that they might transmit it because they're not being treated for it. And 35 states in the U.S. still have laws that criminalize or control the behavior of people living with HIV, including behaviors that are shown to have little to no risk of transmitting HIV, for example, things like spitting. So um, have you noticed any... Uh, of that sort of segment lasting, I guess, now? Yeah, one of the challenges in the early days was how do you reach gay men to talk about sexual health? Because Mm -hmm. being gay was still stigmatized at that point of time. You could lose your job if your employer found out you were gay. You could be denied housing. We didn't have the rights that people had today. So being gay was a very secretive lifestyle. And it's how do you reach men who are not even necessarily acknowledging publicly that they're gay? So um, I remember when the government was coming up with the abstinence policy and in the gay community, it's like, well, this is not going to work. How do you keep people grown men from not having sex? (laughs) It's not like talking to a bunch of preteens, you know, we're talking about 
adults. How do you say you're going to go a lifetime without having sex? So there was some drag queens called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and they are non-drag queens. <laughs> they dress up as nuns, and they are the ones that came up with the first safe sex policies, uh, safe sex wow. pamphlets for gay men. They knew where gay men were going to have sex and have, meeting each other, so they would just appear in those places and start handing out condoms. <laughs> or they would go... Um, Gay bars, there was a period of time when to get into the door of a gay bar, you would have to go through an alley like here in Denver or something like that, or it's very secretive. And so it was the sisters that showed up and all of a sudden the bars just had fish tanks full of condoms and condom posters were everywhere. And in men's rooms, there were, there were condoms. So it got to the point where the community was taking care of themselves because the policies that the federal government was coming up with was um, just impractical. It, it didn't work. It was just unrealistic. So if we move forward in history, because in the early days of HIV, it was all about death. And in 19, in the late 90s, they came up with the protea inhibitors. And that was the first time that they could effectively treat HIV. So what the protea inhibitors do is they keep the HIV virus from multiplying. Matter of fact, it suppresses the virus to the point where you cannot even uh, find HIV in your blood. So the protea inhibitors went from taking pills six times a day to four times a day to two times a day. And in all honesty, I was not able to successfully do a medical regimen until it got to one pill a day. So I was lucky enough that I just, I, I just never died. My T-cells and T-cells are the indication of how strong your immune system is. So your immune system, you probably have around 2,000 T-cells. And once your T-cells drop below 200, that's the definition of AIDS. So what is happening is the HIV virus is killing off your immune system, killing off your immune system, killing off your immune system. So your T-cells just drop and drop and drop and drop. My T-cells dropped as low as 22, 22 T-cells. So that's basically... I'm very close to not having any immune system at all. Mm -hmm. And I had 22 T-cells when the medication uh, regimen became once a day. And I had another black woman in my life. <laughs> she came to my house and she sat me down and she's like, honey, we need for you to live and you just need to put these pills out on the table and to remind you to take those pills every day. And I'm like, well, I'm a gay man. I can't just have pills sitting out. So I got a nice basket. <laughs> And I put my pills inside of this basket and it was in a public place and it reminded me to take my pills every single day. I've lived with HIV for 32 years and do you know I still have my pills sitting in a basket in, wow. in my living room? It's now a part of an altar that I have built around my pills. <laughs> it's, it's my family, my family altar. Uh, but to get to your question about healthcare, now <laughs> HIV went from death to healthcare. So when the news first started saying, this is how you survive AIDS, it was white men that were surviving AIDS. 
for years and years and years because they were the ones receiving the information on taking pills and medication. And to this day, the people that are still struggling with AIDS are black men, Latino men, black women. We are still dying of AIDS during a time when you can survive because the message is not trickling down into our communities about how to survive um, HIV. So now it's advanced to the point where if you take one pill a day, you will not transmit HIV to your partner. Your partner can be HIV negative and they you can have unprotected sex and they will not transmit the virus. If you're in a relationship with multiple partners, you can t- and you're HIV negative, you can take a pill called PrEP and PrEP will keep you from ever getting HIV even if you have unprotected sex. If you are using a condom with somebody that's HIV positive and you're HIV negative and you want to use condoms because you don't trust if they're taking their medication, if the condom breaks, as long as you start a regimen within 3 days is called PEP. You won't get HIV. And then the newest thing that's out right now is injectables. So injectables have just reached the market. So if you're just one of these people that just can't take pills every day, then (laughs) then you can get a shot uh, once every 60 days and that will protect you from from getting HIV. So now the medical system reaching people, this is where racism come into play Uh, because you can see the gay white male community just thriving. We are living, having a great time at Gay Pride. I had a question um, when you were talking more about the medications. I read an autobiography, I think it was by Paul Monet, talking about when his partner was diagnosed with HIV. And in the book, they talked a lot about how they had to travel a lot to get medications and to find healthcare professionals who would give them the medications, test them, or even treat them. What was your experience with that in California and or in Colorado? Did you feel like you had to travel a lot? Well, I was in San Francisco, so I did not have to travel to get medication. However, when people died of AIDS, we hoarded their medication. Or Mm -hmm. people were able to, there was an underground market for uh, HIV medication. So if your medication expired, ordinarily you properly dispose of it. It's like, no, we have people in the community that would redistribute medication in in the community. So there was definitely an, an underground market for medication for a very, very long time because it was very expensive. Congress eventually passed uh, ADAP, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, that as long as your income, I think, was below $50,000 a year, then you can have your medication paid for by the government. But if you were making more than that and you were on your company insurance policy, then there were issues if somehow your company figured out that you had HIV because of the type of medication that you were taking. So there were some people that did not want to get medication through their private insurance because they did not want to be disclosed that they were living with HIV or they did not want it to be disclosed that they were gay men. There was a whole community around drugs and access to drugs. Another thing was 
because you were expected to die of AIDS. There was also an underground community on drugs to in your life. There were conversations that certain doctors, if you were able to ask them in a certain way, <laughs> they would actually give you a fatal dosage of medication uh, mm-hmm. that would end your life. So that was also an underground community of, I'm getting close to dying. How do I get these drugs? so I don't have to suffer. And you would just say to your partner or to your friends around you, I think it's time for me to uh, have one of those cookies now. And you would have a community of men that would gather around you and they would be with you as you went through the death process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one more. Oh, wait, okay. go ahead. I, I wanted to share one thing because I didn't get yeah. into this. An entire generation of the gay community of gay men died of AIDS. So a lot of the things that you would hand down culturally within your family, gay men, there were a lot of things that were not handed down to younger gay men on how to survive in this world as a gay man. A lot of our traditions and building your own families and getting involved in certain types of communities to to support you because you may not get support from your family. There were signals and how gay men used to meet each other. <laughs> what color handkerchief did you wear in your, your back pocket? What side of your body did you carry your keys on your belt? Uh, looking at somebody and smiling and then turning away and turn back to him and smile again. There are all these little secret ways that gay men met each other because we did not have social media and it was still stigmatized back in that day. And all of those traditions that were a part of the gay male community were never handed down because we lost a generation of men to AIDS. And now I I just feel blessed. I'm like, I don't know how I didn't die of AIDS. (laughs) My family is fully accepting. I I live a perfectly normal, healthy life. Uh, I look back on it and I talk to my friends and I'm like, I can't believe we had this experience that we actually lived through this. So now I celebrate. I celebrate my life. I live my life with a lot of joy, with a lot of happiness. As you Um, should. So I'm just happy to have young people in my life and to be able to live with technology and Mm -hmm. even have these types of conversations uh, with you. I look back on it and I'm like, wow. What I experienced. Now, one thing that we didn't talk about was there was a lot of stigma around being HIV positive. So I've never had a long-term partner. I am 62 years old and I've never had a long-term partner because I thought I was going to die of AIDS. And I did not want to do that. I did not allow myself to fall in love. And um, it impacted my sex life because it's like, I would rather not have sex than to carry the guilt of infecting somebody that I I cared about. So if I have one regret in my life is that I've never been deeply in love. I've never allowed myself to have that experience. And now it's like, shoot, I lived. (laughs) One of my best friends, we've known each other for 30 something years. And he was a man that I did not allow myself to fall in love with. And now we're all these years later, I'm like, shoot, we could have been on vacations. We could have (laughs) gone out. 
<laughs> Look at everything we could have done together, and we're best <laughs> friends in, instead of lovers. So that was another way that we all were impacted by HIV. I see. Well, uh, that seems like a, a good place to end it on a, a kind of hopeful <laughs> note. <laughs> um, so essentially, the HIV and AIDS epidemic began in the early 1980s. The federal U.S. government did not address the epidemic until years after it began. And when they did address it, their responses were highly stigmatized. A stigmatization that can still be seen to this day. Calvin, thank you for joining us and sharing your experience. We truly appreciate it. I want to leave our listeners with this last little fact. It was community organizations and individuals that first came together to take care of gay men living with HIV. Prior to and during the HIV AIDS epidemic, it was GLBT, but the lesbian community came together and took care of gay men living with HIV. And to honor and acknowledge this, we now put the L first in LGBTQ. If anyone is interested in learning more about HIV or how you can prevent it, contact our organization. BU Colorado is is a for youth by youth program that aims to provide HIV prevention, healthcare, education, and resources to youth and young adults ages 13 to 24. We can help you access testing and counseling, condoms, PrEP, or treatment medication. We also provide community and school-based education and can answer any questions you may have. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. You can find us at BU Colorado on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to learn more or are interested in any of those medical services we can help you get connected to, head over to BU colorado.org